This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. I'm sure you wouldn't be embarrassed to admit that, uh, you know, you're probably like me and the data science seems like a big black box that hardly anybody understands. If the executive team doesn't understand it, though, how do we engage with it, succeed with it, and all without being taken to the cleaners or going down the drain? To answer that question, Luke Aragoni. Luke, welcome to the show. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so the first uh, question that just you know, I, I, I read that introduction and I think to myself, I don't even, I'm not even sure what data science is. I mean, uh, you know, I thought we're talking about artificial intelligence, or were we talking about uh, you know fake intelligence? I, what are we talking about, and, 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 yeah. uh, and what is the umbrella? Just give us some kind of framework. Yeah. So uh, AI is this really big term that people have used in science fiction and industry for a long time, and uh, it. it it encompasses a lot of really useful tools. So uh, you have AI, and I can make an AI if I wrote a, a million if-then statements. If the towels are dry, pull them out of the dryer. You know, if they're this big, fold them that way. And technically, that would be AI, just kind of useless AI. And so the, the AI that most people are concerned with today is typically machine learning. And that is you give a box a ton of data with the answers in it most often, and uh out of those answers, like you know, how often someone did buy something or how often they did recommend a product to a friend, uh, you make predictions and you say, I am going to predict that this person who we don't know the answer to yet, based on all the data we had before, is going to buy this product. So I'm going to market to them or I'm going to discount it or you know, increase the cost. And that, that's really it. It's in a in its most in its most shortened form, it is us trying to make small predictions to help move businesses and help customers. So uh, it's about predictions, but really it's about creating probability. I mean, I mean, what really sounds Correct. like it's probability theory. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that. Um, we Because of course, it's not prediction the way that you would say, you know, I know for certain this person's going to do it. It's more like um, I have enough confidence that this might happen, that it's worth, you know, a strategic person on the company making some decision for it. Like, let's market to them. Let's discount to them. It is probability. Um, and it is, of course, measurable probability. So you can say, I think it'll happen 70% of the time and then go out and measure that it, it did happen 71% of the time. And then, of course, informs your decision making. But, okay, so you're talking about like AI as it applies to, say, marketing, but there's AI that applies to lots of stuff. Oh, right? everything. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, when to turn the sprinklers on for automated absolutely. irrigation systems, right? I mean, I mean, it could apply to anything. Yeah, no, I've had clients where like uh, Stryker uh, Medical, those uh, surgical equipments they'll use, of course, in a, a lot of the elective surgeries, like knee surgeries and things like that. And they want to know when those devices are going to fail because it's expensive to fail in the middle of a surgery, right? It's worth it to replace all of them rather than it is to, um, you know, let them fail at a critical moment. And so that's one thing. It's not marketing. It's pure device. It's no one even sees it. Not even the physician sees it that uses the tool. Just the admins at the hospital are like, oh, we have to send this drill in. Otherwise, that drill might uh, fail at the wrong time. So AI is used uh, operationally for marketing, uh, for financial decisions, asset predictions, like how will this asset be worth more or worth less? Uh, there's a whole spectrum of uses. And it's all about that small predictability. 
you know, all right, so let's talk about assets because I'm in the business of assets. I love assets. And, okay, let's talk, let's talk about that because here I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, so the computer starts thinking about assets. Mm-hmm. Well, computers are built by people. People put in the assumptions. And what if the people forgot to put in a big assumption? Like, like what if there's a war or what if, what if there's right. a, a supply chain crisis or a pandemic? I mean, they, I'm sure they didn't have that built in and that probably wrecked up their models. You know, to go back to the question at the start of this this podcast, that is where the strategic com- thinking comes in. That is where the people that understand their domain thrive. They'll use data science as a tool, as a hammer, but they know that it's just a hammer. I can't throw a hammer onto a blank lot and suddenly it becomes a house, right? Like you have to wield this tool correctly. So if you are in a strategic environment and you think that there might be a war, right? That's a big thing, or maybe not anymore. Um, but uh, you know, you might be able to talk to the data science team around like, what I really want to know is what does systemic failure look like for us? And we're trying to predict, you know, maybe logistically, like how much it'll cost to ship something to somewhere else in the world, right? And those fluctuate with oil prices and things like that, right? And you might say, I need to make sure that your modeling incorporates these things, these events that may happen. And you can kind of pull that from your data science team or your you know, data science consultants, whoever does that work. But it's, it's not crazy and no one should feel crazy as a strategic decision maker to say, we need to account for this thing inside the data science. Don't pretend that it's like, this is just some you know, ivory tower type situation. I shouldn't go and bother them. That's not the case. You should be very involved in how that tool gets wielded. Well, what if they, what if they forget? I mean, what if, what if they, they overlook an assumption? I mean, what, I mean, I mean, well, that is the, I think that's the game that all your listeners and you and I enjoy playing, which is the, the, the stuff that I can remember, the stuff that's better will make me better than my competitors. Right. Um, I guess that's kind of like the funny response. The, the, the practical response is if you've forgotten one of those things, the AI will fail in those things. There's no magic bullet. So you have to be careful. Um, and hopefully you are more careful or smarter than the people that are also building AI systems. So the AI is not really any smarter than the people that build it. Bingo. <laughs> you know, I, I've talked to clients and I, of course, will not name them that are very open to like corporate espionage. Like it's, it is a tool. AI is a tool and being able to, to gather other data or poison the other person's AI, it's all fair right now. There's not really a lot of legislation around giving your competitor the wrong data signed up as a customer. That's not hacking. That's open. Like there's, it's a cat and mouse game. It is yeah. so, just at a very high like, level. Like uh, Sherwin Antitrust is on the horizon for your industry. <laughs> I mean, the as whole, the whole Sherwin thing. I mean, it, on politicians, like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, in, in the 1800s, uh, there weren't any rules on the books. And, and, and when all this stuff started happening, they had to put rules on the books. And it sounds like your, your industry is right for that. So, uh, like, like my recollection of, a, of AI, and I just want to kind of get clear about a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, is Waze AI? Yeah. You know, maybe I can clear up AI a little bit more. There's a general sense, and especially in science fiction, that AI is like a robot that's like in your house and talks to you and does all these things. That is not what anyone is building. I won't say anyone. There's probably a couple of people that are, but that's not what materially we do in, in AI and machine learning. We tackle one problem. Like, for instance, if I were to tackle the problem of, will this device fail? I would not be able to also predict uh, you know, how much it gets used. They're so granular that those would be two separate, quote, AIs. 
one for how often the device gets used and one for if it will fail. And so if you have these collection of AIs together, it could do something like drive a car. And if you have a Tesla, the Tesla has like 20 or 30 quote AIs. We call them machine learning models, um, but you know, it's very granular, very specific. I've got a friend who's a scientist and, uh, you know, like in, uh, in the early 2000s, like 2003, he told me that his company was working on commercializing some NASA, you know, uh, ideas or patents or whatever they were mm-hmm. and uh, some governmental things. And, and he was saying that uh, they had the ability to like, for like this device to know how far away another device is like, and, and, and at that time we couldn't really think of what that would be used for. And it turns out that it, it provides for cars not to crash into each other, provides yeah. for cars to, you know, and, and that's, that's an interesting application, but this, a lot of this stuff is, is old and it's being adapted. I mean, any, any other really cool ideas that you've run across uh, that, that we might be interested in? Yeah. I mean, just to, to that point, um, a lot of the, the neural networks and stuff that we appreciate today were first thought of in the sixties and then written about it extensively in the nineties. And it wasn't until computation became very cheap in the last decade that it became um, kind of widespread. So it is, it is interesting that some of the older ideas do come back. just the time is right. And the technology is right. So they kind of all marry into what we have now. I, I guess it wasn't feasible. They didn't have enough horse computing horsepower. That's it. To yeah. Happen, right? mm-hmm. yeah. And what about, um, uh, what about uh, you know Wi-Fi number six? I mean, how much of a difference is that five, five or six? Uh, Wi-Fi, whatever, whatever we're on G G five or whatever. Yeah. The G, no, it's not Wi-Fi. It's the G five or whatever. How much of a difference is that going to make? Uh, you know that additional bandwidth. Like, what are some applications yeah. that that's going to make a big difference for? So uh, I'm not an expert in five G, but I the things I know about how it'll impact industry and at least data is that. It's going to make it a lot easier for every little device out on the network and on this mesh to collect data. So before having cellular devices out there, phone home was kind of an ordeal. And with 5G, that's uh, a lot cheaper and a lot easier to do. So I think if you are in a capacity where you we consider it edge devices, like maybe you sell a device that goes out to consumers, right? Well, if you want to think about 5G, like how it impacts you, you might be able to start collecting a ton of data that you could use in a positive way um, uh, later on. So 5G can have that impact on some industries. What, um, what, where's all this going? I mean, is, is it, do you see a left turn in the horizon or you just see it driving straight for a long time, getting better and better? No, I think, um, I think that we are in a telescoping point in evolution where, um, Probably in the next few years, we'll see something that looks like magic that someone like 10 years ago, that'll look like magic, uh-huh. something maybe 10 years ago, we would have never dreamed of. I think it's, um, I think we're right around the corner from something big and I don't even know what it is necessarily. I mean, what, in your imagination, uh, you know, I, I, maybe you're not a futurist, but in your imagination, what, uh, what do you think some of those possibilities might be? Yeah, no, I, I think that the capabilities for machines to augment us as humans and our human experience is going to be significant in the next five to 10 years. So like um, right now, if I were to ask you who in your life loves you, who hates you and who maybe thinks about you once a month, you might take, you know, a week to consider that question when a computer might be able to answer that for you within seconds. Like here's the list based on your, all your communications, the way they looked at you, things that happened, things that were said, like, 
I think our, our experience as humans are about to become enmeshed with AI. You know, uh, I use CRM and, and it, it sorts things by the most recent contact. I mean, you can sort it in a hundred mm-hmm. different ways, but I, I like to see who contact me the most frequently and then how often you touch them. Uh, but things like how did they look at you? That's got to be recorded in order for the computer to have an, have an opinion about it or whatever, whatever that word opinion mm-hmm. would be used. I mean, the, the, the thing is that uh, it's because digital allows everything to be recorded that we have access to all this information and data. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's the difference between now and 40 years ago. Uh, we are 100% correct. Even your mention on 5G, being able to collect even more data. And if you consider the fact that probably the largest data source is just floating out there, which is our voices, us talking to other people, and there really isn't a large-scale effort to record that, um, which maybe we don't ever want, right? Let's be honest. But, I mean, that's still, there's, if we think about analog forms of data, there's, we haven't even tapped the surface of what's possible. When you think about, do um, you think they're going to be implanting devices inside of people or you just put a I bug do. in your ear and it'll whisper in your ear? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? No, I, think, um, I think implantation is probably eminent. I don't think as a species we get out of that. Now, how it happens or the rules around it or you know, how that works is going to be something that I think is up for grabs. But the first time that someone is able to ace every single standardized test on earth within 20 minutes, you know, is that's going to be pretty, uh, pretty tempting for some people to try and jump in. You know, like you the know, idea heard, that you can like tap into this huge knowledge of human, uh, I'm sorry, uh, huge tap, tap into a huge amount of uh, human knowledge is, uh, so quickly and effortlessly is going to be very tempting. I remember uh, being a, a young boy, 10 years old, and there was a Disney movie called The Computer Who Wore Tennis Shoes. And it was about this guy that uh, uh, he was kind of an outcast, not, not that smart of a guy at a college, and he wasn't doing that great. And he walks in the computer lab and he steps on an electrical cord or something and he gets like practically electrocuted and all the information from the whole computer goes in his brain. And he ends up being the smartest guy and he's going on game shows. <laughs> he's winning contests. And I, I don't remember much more than that, but I mean, imagine, uh, you know, if, if that happened. Now, here's the thing. It's almost like fax machines. The first guy that had a fax machine had like a three-week advantage over everybody else. But as soon as everybody else had one, then you had no advantage at all. So if everybody had the same advantage, it would not be an advantage at all. So so I built this this product for a client, um, uh, Thomson Reuters, and they the best feedback, probably some of the best feedback I've ever been given on a project I was on was this. Um, they, we built this thing, it like helped them predict motions on how judges would come down on certain legislation. Like it was, or or litigation, it was very intelligent and, um, they showed it to their customers and their customers were happy, but angry. They said, now we have to get this or we will actually be disadvantaged against our competitors that may have it. They were like almost angry that there was a tool that they now needed that was so impossible to avoid that it was basically like they had to get it or they were no longer at parity, but they loved the tool, but they, they hated that the tech even was there now. And, um, and I, I thought that that was, that was a cool thought, right. Uh, and kind of what you're talking about. Well, no, I, I'll tell you what, uh, I, I can think of several examples of that exact situation where if you don't buy it, you're at a disadvantage. You know, yeah. I, I uh, you know, we produce a trend report every year and I gave this example of uh, of sonar and fish finders and chips, you know, like if, if you're a professional fisher uh, person, 
Uh, you don't go out and smoke cigar and just wait for fish to bite on your line. I mean, you're out there, you turn the sonar on when you find a pod, you go out and you, you scoop them up or whatever those people do. And if you don't have sonar, you're at a terrible disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same thing that, that, you know, those guys use fish finders, but other people, if you're like a salesperson, you're using intent-based data. And, you know, if they're, if your competitors are using intent-based data and you're not using intent-based data, you're at a terrible disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about intent-based data. Cause I think this is a fascinating thing. I, I, I personally think that, uh, you know, the, the killer app in all of this it tends to be around sales, uh, sales, marketing, because that's where the money is. Everything else is kind of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I won't generalize too much, but I think the killer app is really in sales and marketing, um, you know, figuring out kind of what people are going to do next, uh, you know, helping you plan influence, how you influence others might be a good way of putting it at a very general level. And sales and marketing is a big part of that, but like politicians use it too, right? Intent data can be used basically to help you influence. So, all right, so first of all, just, just help us understand, just you know, give us your interpretation mm-hmm. of intent data, and let's talk about a couple applications. Yeah, so really, uh, and I could be wrong on this. Maybe we, we, we don't have the same definition, but uh, for me, intent data is data that has, um, basically, it's free-form text audio. It is um, some kind of indication to want something. It is beyond this is how much someone paid for a house and more or less like, like if I were to go to buy a house, right, or sell a house, now we're to record all the things that people said inside of the house, that would be data that would be, you know, what is their intent as buyers? What are they wanting to buy? Um, and less about, you know, the number that they pick, right? You know, you might have someone come through and they they mention only about the windows. These people might really just want a house with lots of windows. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm thinking. What are you thinking about? You know, I, I think kind of similar. I, I think of it a little bit in a more generic sense that, you uh, uh, you're thinking that uh, you want to move to Las Vegas, so you do an internet search, and uh, you know real estate brokers are homes in Las Vegas, uh, and then Google or whoever the in, uh, the organizations are sell those leads to the real estate brokers in Las Vegas, saying here's somebody that is interested in buying a house mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. Uh, you know that's that's, uh, no, that's exactly what I, I mean. We're on the same page. I yeah. I just talked about the step right before that, but you're talking about the step that matters, right? Which is well, you know, once you have intent, right? So yeah, yeah so, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is, so then the, uh, we, we all know that the second that you, uh, you know, click on an ad, you're going to see that ad. It's going to follow you around the internet, which by the way, I understand that Apple's recently shut that down and it's causing Facebook all kinds of problems. It's they well, went to, the, to the tune of yep. billions and billions of dollars Yep, because their, their, their targeting is, is gone uh, off the rails, but, uh, you know, but, but beside they follow you around on the internet, they're now selling those leads to real estate brokers in Las Vegas who say this person uh, wants to, uh, you know, buy a, you know, buy a house in Las Vegas, hurry up and call them. And it probably is more of a commercial application than a residential application just because of the privacy laws. But when you know that information, you know, you know a lot about a company, you can call them and you can sell them some stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. Um, and then, you know, there's, that's from single dimensional desire, single dimensional intent as well. Like this person wants to buy this house, but they also can say this person, um, wants to, and this is a more of a future state. It's not what you can buy now, but um, this person also wants to be near family, wants to make more money. They want to expand their family. They want to have more kids. They want to adopt, right? This person is about to get divorced, right? And they're looking for a house in, in Nevada, right? Um, there's all kinds of things that are multifaceted that'll help people that are in sales capacities make really clever decisions, 
not just this person wants your product. It is this person wants your product. And also this is the shape of them. This is kind of what they want and you can help fulfill those wants. You know, I do, I do a lot of predictive work and, and I, I believe it's entirely possible to be very accurate about predicting the future. Not, mm-hmm. not using a crystal ball. I'm no, not talking about anything you mean, silly. Yeah, I mean, you're talking I mean, about prescience, being able to well, see what may happen. Well, what I'm really talking about is leading indicators. Mm-hmm. That most of what people rely on are lagging indicators. In other words, financial statements are a, a picture of what has already happened. It's not a predictor mm-hmm. of what is going to happen. Uh, people buying luggage kind of predicts that there's probably going to be more travel happening in the future. So what are mm-hmm. some of the leading indicators that uh, that the whole AI world looks at or that you think about? Do you have any of those that you like to lead on? I, I like to collect this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, really, the simple answer is every industry is different. I know that sucks to hear. But um, uh, typically, we can try to find these indicators when we look at lots of data by saying, like, what's their correlative value? Like, how, how correlative is this one metric to something that you really care about? And that's kind of the analysis. Not That's more the science than less the art way of thinking about it. Um, but typically, these um, these indicators live really close to the want. So if you want people to spend more money with you, typically the indicator lives on the checkout page, right? It's not going to live in their in- email inbox. As we all know, the whole pipeline is important. You have to optimize every single stage. But we've we've often found that you know, closer you get to what you actually want to measure, the indicators are probably going to be there. And I know that's not as helpful or predictive, but I mean, that seems to be the truth. Can you be more specific? And for example, you know, like, like the example I just gave people buying luggage is an indicator of more travel in the future. I I mean, I mean, do you have any, anything that's simple Um, like that? Not without giving away IP. I am so sorry. Okay. <laughs> that's all right, that's the kind of stuff that I think all of my clients would call me immediately after this podcast and kill me for. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, like I said, I can help people or I can help whoever's listening, you know, think about how they want to find those things, um, you know, looking in your data and trying to find those correlations. But unfortunately, I can't speak the specifics of my clients. So, so how, well, how would you go about finding new ones? You look in their data and say, when this happens, that happens? Pretty much. I mean, that's, so that's the, that's the simplest way to do it, right? Is why don't we just look at all the data and see if there's something that predicts right off the bat. It gets you so like 60, so 70 on the way. You're looking for patterns. That's and there it. Are, there are predictive exactly. patterns. We are looking to exploit patterns in data. And the more data we can find, and even if it's data that doesn't feel like your industry, like um, we once were doing uh, um, you know, sales predictions of division one football tickets, like in person. And of course we did weather. But we also did like movie sales in the area. And we tried to incorporate like if people went to the movies more, how would that indicate their ability or their desire to go to a, a game? Right. And so like, of course, those things end up having predictive value. Um, and so it goes back once again to the our whole topic here, which is, you know, if you are strategic enough, you can think about the data that might influence your industry and then give it to a data scientist um, or, you know, instruct the data scientists. Uh, to try and find that connection. You know, I, I, I guess what I just heard you say is that if this happens, then this other thing is likely to happen. Yes. And you look for these correlations between things and, uh, you know. And yeah, so, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, uh, you know, we, we do, or most data sciences will, um, uh, they'll find that one big connection, but really that only gets you maybe two thirds of the way of the goal. 
and you can't really make decisions on that. You need the rest. And so you basically rally around one big indicator, but you go and find all of the ancillary data to take you to 97%. And as an executive once told me, they said, you know, Luke, every 1% you get right on this project saves us $1.2 million. I was just like, oh, I guess that's an incentive enough to go find that extra data set somewhere for a couple hundred grand if it's going to save them 1.2 million a year to get one extra percent. So um, that big indicator is important, but there is a, a strategic march to try and get to as high as possible. Is that number 97% a real number or are you playing around? Because that is a really, really high number. Um, for which one? You just said 97% certainty. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, every, every 1% that you get up, that you increase, uh, depending on your industry means something to you. And so I have had clients that will spend a fortune getting very, very high precision or very high accuracy because you know, that those percent matter or they're playing now, a cat and mouse game with someone else. I, I've always, uh, you know, just, just internally thought to myself that, um, uh, you can't get to a hundred percent of information. It's too expensive. And by the time you get to a hundred percent, the opportunity is lost. So typically, you know, I, I, I really shoot for like 70, 75%, you know, once you get to 70, 75%, that's kind of about all you're going to get. But what you're saying is that what we used to do, like, you know, kind of as people is being tremendously exceeded by, by machines. Correct. And that they can I'm... gather a lot more data and be a lot more accurate, which, which I believe would be so. If I can speak to that real quick, they, uh, I, pretty much every model that goes out to production is 90 plus percent, at least from, at least from my team. And, um, if we've ever gotten a model that's 99% or higher, we will actually tell the client there's an error and we need to fix it actually yeah. happened two days ago. I did. We built a model. It was 99% accurate. I told the client, I don't know what's wrong. I need to fix it. They said 99%. That sounds really good. I said, that's clearly an error. There's no way I predicted anything to 99%, especially not in like, it was like my first or second try. And so I, I completely agree. You can't really get to hundred percent. In fact, it's almost an anti-signal if you come up, especially quickly or cheaply at hundred um, percent. But at the same time, yeah, we are all shooting over 85, over 90, 95% accuracy. And people have deep budgets to, to get there because every percent matters. Yeah. So where does this leave uh, human intuition? Is, is intuition a thing of the past or uh, is no, it? No, no. So, so where does the, it fit in? Uh, knowing where to look, how to attack the problem. Data science, AI, it's just a tool. I, so myself and, you know, uh, here's a good story. So we, um, we had a client <clears throat> and they said, hey, Luke, um, you know, we have IBM Watson's AI team. And they just tried to figure out this problem and they, they just can't solve it. And uh, we're going to give you the same data set and we're hoping you can get better than them. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I can beat IBM Watson, right? But let's give it a shot. We worked for a couple of weeks and we ended up murdering them. Like it was something like they got like 16% accuracy and we were, you know, 90 plus percent. And um, I thought I was fighting an adversary that was going to have like 98%. And, you know, the client wanted 99 and I came back kind of head hung and I'm like, man, I can only get to 92 on this. They're like, oh, IBM only got to 16. <laughs> and um, we had the same data. They had access to more hardware, but my team, um, the thing we did different that they didn't do, and we heard about this from the client later was we interviewed all the people that actually do that work, that predictive work and asked them, how do they make that decision? And we went and found all the data sources that they use to make those decisions. And we collected them. 
Um, IBM Watson's team just got all the data, put it in a big machine like it was just a tool, and then boom, out came a model, and the model was bad. And they're like, this is all we can do. My team actually like took a more human approach and said, well, how would you solve this problem? And then we went from there. You know, it's really interesting that um, uh, I once heard a, a CPA fraud investigator talk about the Bernie Madoff case. And, and he was saying, you know, that uh, they can do all the forensics in the world. But the truth is that they find more information by talking to the people than they do by looking through books and records. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Yeah. Our team has a history of success by just basically asking people, how would you solve this problem? And then we teach a machine how to solve it that way. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that, uh, that kind of comes to mind here, uh, you know, you looked at something 99, you immediately knew your, your gut told you something was wrong. Uh, I was recently exposed somebody, you know, I'm, I'm on a board of directors and they passed around the financial statements. 20 people are clapping and clapping that the financial statements are terrific. And I'm like, no, this totally got to be wrong. Totally. It, it mm-hmm. cannot be right because it was too different from what I expected. And which is exactly what you just said. And it's interesting how experts and, you know, in financial experts and computers, experts and whatever, that, that you have a certain, that's the intuition question, that you have mm-hmm. a certain experience that tells you something is wrong and you can't believe it, but you have to know a lot to know that something is wrong. And, and I sort of remember even when calculators first came out in the 70s, what's, what's dangerous about calculators is if you don't know how to multiply numbers, you'll never know if the calculator is right or wrong. You know, you, you won't know that it's got the right number of decimals or digits. So you won't, you won't even know anything to be able to say, I wonder if I typed it in wrong. And not to get too theoretical or too philosophical about this, but I think it's easier to have that intuition or be open to listening to that intuition. If you understand that your value as a decision maker is not about getting high numbers, but about making the correct decision in the correct situation. So for instance, if the numbers came back and they're all terrible, that's not actually a bad thing. It is just a new state that you have to make strategic decisions for. So for me, when it came back and it was 99, I was open to the idea that that was not the real state of things. So now I'm going to go and find um, more data, different kind of data, and I'll find it. It'll actually work so that when they're out in production, it's not an embarrassment that it doesn't work. Or for you, you just wanted to help make that decision in the board meeting. Of, I don't think this is the correct state. Why don't we find what the real state is so we can make correct decisions? It's not about the numbers being high or low. It's about let's represent reality so that I can make a strategic choice to kind of move the needle in the right way. Yeah. You kind of have a surgical approach about this. I don't think that most people are quite as dispassionate uh, about the outcome (laughs) as maybe you're describing it. I I think your attitude is a great attitude, but I don't think that everybody kind of functions exactly the same way. And and that makes it more difficult for them. No, that's true. It's, it really is a belief that I can get the number as high as possible, yeah. right? Or at least as high as I can go, right? But like, I, I believe I have more to contribute in every environment. Like I can get this higher. I can make this better. Um, you know, that Kaizen philosophy. Um, but, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm just overjoyed with everyone else when the numbers do get high, but I'm not willing to uh, self-delude um, to, to get there. Yeah. Well, listen, one thing is that uh, if you don't know the truth, you can't figure out the problem. Exactly. You know, so you, you really like it or not, you need to know what's true. And, you know, some leaders are better at digging that up than others. So, hey, listen, man, I, I have to say that the promise of the show is to deliver the inside track, the best, smartest and fastest way to make something happen. And uh, you certainly delivered on the promise, sharing with us how all this, uh, you know, IP, data science, uh, you know, AI, all this 
stuff works and you know, word led just things I can't even think of that, that you got right. But uh, and anytime somebody delivers on the promise, we call those people advantage players. And uh, you're an advantage player and you did a great job and you delivered for our audience. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. I, I well, hope everyone awesome, takes man. something we'll, away. We'll call your contact information in the show notes if anybody has any questions or uh, somehow wants to follow up with you. So thanks very much for, uh, for being with us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.